I'm sure that we've all had the experience of going to the mall and cringing as we see this young couple that believe they are in love, walking through the mall, clinging to each other, kissing one another as they go back and forth. It's obvious very quickly that they're not really in love, they're more just in lust and they don't know the difference. But it's cringe-inducing to, to observe, and, and these public displays of affections are, are something that lead to our discomfort as we see them. Instinctively, we, we suspect that this relationship is destined for problems. It, it, the way it's developing is unwise. And problems and, and disappointment, that's what's in the future for this young pair. This is not an example of building a foundation for genuine love. Yet, as we discussed last week, when we look around our, our society, we largely fail to find good examples of relationships of genuine love. Fortunately, we can look within our church and we, we can find a few. But throughout our, our culture, there, there really is very little that we can see of examples of what genuine love, true love, looks like. We, we certainly cannot find them in social media or on TV shows and movies. This is why we need the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. Here we find God's design for, for genuine, intimate love between a man and a woman, presented in a pure example to us. Last week we began looking at this off-bypass book, and if you weren't here last week and you're wondering why would we do this series, I encourage you to, to listen to last week's sermon. I addressed that question last week. As a portion of God's Word, we can have confidence that, that there is something in this book for all of us. As a portion of God's Word, we, we know there is something here. Looking at this book will help us understand what perfect love is. We can understand the perfect love of our Savior more fully as we see ideal love illustrated. We, we also need to recognize that we are all involved in, in human intimacy. We're all involved in human marriage, even if we are not personally married ourselves. Either directly or indirectly, we are involved in this aspect of humanity. So we all need to understand what God's ideal is for these things. Last week I explained that we should not look at the song, as I'm calling the, the Song of Solomon for short. It gets too long to say the whole thing all the time. We, we cannot look at the song as a drama. There, there's not a storyline for us to follow. Rather, what this is is a song that's really like a, a symphony. There, there are several parts that, that provide movement. They're designed, skillfully arranged to, to carry our emotions along as songs do through progression of pure love between a man and a woman. The, the song is sung by three voices. We have the, the beloved, as I'm calling the, the main singer, the, the female solo. She's singing the, the part of a young woman in love. Then secondly, we have the lover, as I'm calling the, the solo voice of the man. He is the one who has captured the love of the beloved and, and has his own love for her. And then the third voice is really a chorus. It's, it's a group of female friends that uh, are friends of the beloved, and they add this third perspective, singing as a, a, a choral group. Last week, as we began looking at the first section of the song, 
We, we have the beloved who sang her joy in, in this newfound love that she had, and, and she longed to spend more time with her lover. She wanted to be in his presence. She, she wanted their relationship to grow and, and, and imagine being with him for longer periods of time. Her, her friends sang of, of their encouragement to her, encouraging her to, to pursue this relationship as, as that which was proper. This morning, we're going to work our way through the remainder of the, the first main section. There's really three main sections in the song, and we're going to finish out the first main section this morning with a sermon I've entitled, as you can see, Ooh La La. You know, I didn't expect ever name a sermon that, or a title sermon that. We, we can think of this first main section as the first stanza before an interlude. It, it, it's the end of, a, a, maybe you could think of it as a first verse or the first choral movement of a law, large orchestration. We're coming to the end of this and then there'll be an interlude as we move to the second one. And that might be the way to imagine the songs progressing. Our, our singers, they, they will continue to express their joy as, as the love between the man and the woman continue to grow and strengthen, be, becoming more passionate and intense in their minds. My, my plan this morning is that we'll work our way through this part of the song before we consider what are the applications that, that God may intend for us. Let's pick up the song with verse 9 of, of chapter 1. If, if the lover, the, the male voice, remember I'm using the word lover for the male voice, not that, that he is inappropriate in his love in any way. If the lover has an opportunity to, to respond to the desires of his beloved, to this point he is not sung. Now, as she has yearned to be with him and her friends have encouraged her to go find him, now at last he gets to sing for the first time, responding, as we hear the lovers admiring of the beloved. Verse 9, to me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. So he sings to his beloved. He, and as he does, he uses what we will find is his favorite way of addressing her, my darling, or, or my love, depending on your translation. What he does is he uses a term that, that refers to a person who's dearly loved, someone who's cherished. This is the first time that, that the lover uses this term, but we'll encounter it nine more times as we work our way through the song. It's his way of saying, he prefers her above all others. It's his special pet name for her. In fact, the, the exact point that he makes with the metaphor that he develops in the verses we just look, read is that she is the one he prefers above all others. In, in the original Hebrew, the, the very first word, the, and in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you put it first. There, there was no ways of underlining or things. It, it was put first. And the very first word for it, the word for emphasis is the word my mare. Now, we may not think in calling a, a girlfriend a mare will score any points. It's probably not an imagery we would use, but, but in Solomon's day, this was a great compliment. He, he's comparing her to the horses that, that drew Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh would have had the best horses of all. Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt. As you know, Egypt was the greatest nation on earth at the time this was written. So, so he's picturing the greatest horses that could be acquired and placing her among them. 
These would have been magnificent horses. They were stunning. And yet our lover indicates that his beloved stands out among them. She is noteworthy. Some commentators try to make a point of the fact that she's a mare among what probably would have been stallions. Most likely Pharaoh would have had stallions drawing his chariots. Personally, I think that's straining the metaphor a little too far. He simply calls her a mare because she's a woman. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate to liken her to a stallion. The lover considers her, though, and he con- considers his beloved, and, and he sees her, and, and he thinks of her adornment, and, and that's comparable to the dazzling ornaments and adornment that would have decked out Pharaoh's horses on display. In, in his eyes, his beloved is equally dazzling. He cannot help but admire her. As soon as, as the lover sings his lines of admiration, the, the chorus, the, the friends, they, they again respond as they continue to encourage the relationship, that the friends encourage the relationship. Verse 11, We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. You can almost hear this course chiming in real fast, right? We will, we will make you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. As he has just mentioned, you have around your neck these strings of beads. Well, we'll make you more, and they'll be great ones. The lover admired the the beloved's adornments, so her friends sing that they'll ensure that she has even greater adornments to wear for her lover. They will make her ornaments of gold, the most precious metal, and silver, the next precious, ornaments that that will amplify her beauty before her lover. In, In the era that the song's written here, the, the primary time that a young lady would wear such adornment would be at her wedding. It, it may be that the friends are saying, we're going to start preparing for your wedding. It's obvious where this relationship is going. There, there's true love being developed here. We see where it's going and we're going to prepare for that, that blessed day. We'll start accumulating what's needed now. In other words... They're giving their blessing in the preparation of adornment. Things are not really different today in that regard. The, the, the beaded dress and the jewelry that the bride wears on her wedding day, they are far greater than anything she wears at any other time of her life. We've all seen brides walk down with their, their dresses glittering and full of beads and ornamentation and, and sparkle. And yet we don't see a woman wear that any other time. I'm sure we've all also seen groups of of ladies running around town with sashes that say bride, maid of honor, bridesmaid. The bride and the bridal party, they plan entire days of festivities around selecting the the dresses and and the accessories all in preparation for that day. The event of, of picking out these things, that it's a significant event. It's not something rushed through and the bridal party is all involved in the activities and that's one way that they share in the joy of the bride. They're they're sharing the joy that the bride and and the groom will have for one another. The bride and her fiancé, their joy that they'll be united. Well, by joining in these festivities, they're joining in that, that joy and they're also when they join, sharing in encouraging the relationship. They're, they're adding their blessing to the progression of the relationship to marriage. That's what the friends are echoing in verse 11. After the friends 
than sing of their brief encouragement here. It's, it's brief, but it's encouraging. The, the beloved, once more, is given several solo lines. The, the lady gets to sing a lot more in this song than, than the man does, and she, once more, is given several solo lines. As she re- now responds to her lover's admiration. The young woman is allowed to initiate a, a love song here at the beginning. She was the first sing, and, and she responds with her admiration intensifying. Her, her song is more specific than, than the lover's song, yet, yet she continues this royal imagery. He, he mentioned Pharaoh's chariot, so she picks up that idea from that reference of Pharaoh and, and uses a royal image when she writes, or sings here in verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. The woman continues to see her lover as, as her personal king. He is royal in her eyes. She, she pictures him now as, as lounging at his banqueting couch. Remember at that day they didn't sit at tables like we will this afternoon when we eat together. They, they lounged on couches in a reclined position. So she pictures herself reclining next to him, enjoying his admiration of her. Her longing for her lover is certainly intensifying. In verse 13, for the first time, she uses what will become her favorite descriptor for her lover when she refers to him as, as my beloved. It's it's a similar in, in, in meaning to the, the word that the lover used in verse 9. It's a different word, but it's also a word that, that's used for one who's dearly loved, one who's cherished, one who's or preferred above all others. And she adds the personal pronoun, my, my beloved. She identifies her lover as her personal beloved one. Now, the, the woman, she'll go on and use this term 27 times in, in, in the song as she refers to her man. And her friends will also echo the same word another five times, picking up her language and referring to, to the man by the same term as, as the woman's using. So we see this word a lot as, as she refers to her beloved. The, the woman, the, the beloved, longs to recline and, and celebrate in his presence. She, she wants her lover to, to enjoy her nearness to him. The, the reference to her perfume giving off its fragrance. It, it may even refer to her arousal as, as well as her attractiveness to him. She, she imagines her, her man with her all night, lying with her as if he were the pouch of fragrance that, that lies between her breasts. To, to her, he is the one that she savors is the choicest of fragrance. She is, he is as the white fragrant flowers that uh, the stately henna bush would have there in Engedi, in the carefully tended vineyards of Engedi. As we read these verses, we, we may not follow all of the imagery in, invoked. That, as I said last time, is one of the challenges that we have when we come to the Psalms. She, they're using poetic language to create word pictures, but the word pictures don't necessarily mean things in our minds. Uh, we don't think of, of henna bushes very often, if ever. We don't know anything about where Engedi is, let alone the, the vineyards of Engedi. They, they don't create a picture in our mind. 
you know, if, if I say something about the, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, an image comes to your brain. Not so with the henna bushes in the vineyards of Engedi. We need to work to understand these pictures, but as we do, we can understand that what she is expressing is that her attraction is leading to passion. And the passion is building. There's nothing sexual happening between the two of them at this point. But her attraction is, is turning into a yearning for an opportunity to express her love physically. She, she's intimately aware of, of these growing desires that she has within herself. And, and, and she voices them in her song to her lover. We may be a little bit shocked to, to find such direct language in Scripture. But what, we should not be surprised at the progress that, that we see unfolding here in this song. This really is the natural course of attraction and love. As a man and a woman grow in their affection toward one another, and as that affection becomes a deeper attraction, that, that attraction grows towards love, there, there's a natural desire to express that love. Words grow more intense, yet, yet words eventually fall short, and, and there's a longing for more. That's what's going on here. The, the woman's intense words, as she responds to the admiration of her lover, it, it now provokes a, a quick series of back and forth between the, the lover and the beloved as they, they sing back and forth to one another about their mutual admiration. The lover responds first to this intense attraction that the woman has just expressed. He, verse 15, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. I really love this verse. It, to me, this verse is so stereotypical of us men, or at least maybe I shouldn't label all men here, but I'll put myself in this category. It, it's like the man here is stunned by the extravagant expressions of his beloved, that the, the words that she has just made, and, and he kind of stumbles over his words. She has intimately compared him to a pouch of myrrh, She's compared him to a cluster of henna blossoms. He responds, uh, you're really beautiful. Really, that's what he's saying here. If you get down to it for a moment, it's as if his, her emotions overwhelm him and, and he loses his poetic voice completely. All he can do is repeat himself, how beautiful you are, how beautiful you are. He, he does manage at, at the end to come up with a simple comparison. He, he matches her eyes to doves, but, but it's so far below the, the, the words he used at the beginning. But the beloved, she faithfully responds. The, the beloved responds, How handsome you are, my beloved, and how pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxurious. We, we lose it in our English translation, but... Th the, the, the beloved simply echoes the words of her lover. The, the term that we have translated um, as handsome is the exact same word as we find in verse 15 for beautiful. It's simply the male version of the word, the, the masculine form. So she's simply echoing his words back to him. It's unclear who sings verse 17. 
They're, they're, they're not clear indicators if it's sung by the male or the female soloist in the song. But the back and forth nature that we have going on here suggests that verse 17 is probably the, the male solo voice, the, the man singing again. It, as she says, our couch is luxurious. Well, he says, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters, cypress. It's obvious from this going back and forth that the beloved was successful in her quest. If you recall last week, it ended with her singing about her desire to find her beloved, or her lover rather, to find him out among the shepherds. And her friends encouraged her, well, go look for him, go seek him. Well, obviously she found him because now they're going back and forth with one another. She's found him, and they've found a quiet place to spend time together. It is simply a rustic place in the forest somewhere, but, but in their eyes, this place is as glorious as a palace that's built with cedars and cypress, the, the most expensive of woods, the most luxurious palace you can imagine. Their, their rustic little spot in, in the forest is, is just as idyllic in their eyes. The back and forth continues in verse 1 as, as the woman sings again, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Frankly, this is probably one of the more challenging verses for us to understand properly. Not because the language is difficult, but because we bring preconceptions to this verse. For the past couple of millennia, the, the phrase Rose of Sharon and Lilies of Valleys, they, they've been romanticized. Because of this verse, they've been picked up and they make frequent appearances in, in Christian poetry. So in our minds, these words create these beautiful images tied to this millennia of poetry. Even if we don't know the poetry, we, we, the, these phrases have carried forth. So in our minds, they create this but really what she is using her in for words, what the woman is using is just a phrase for common flowers, the, the wildflowers of the region. What the beloved is saying is that she is simply average. She is just one among many flowers. The, the field's full of all these blooms and she's just one of them. It's as if now she's getting her passion under control that, that she had expressed earlier and upon a more quiet reflection, she, she's marveling that, that her lover would have chosen her among all the other women available. That he would consider her mare among the chariots of Pharaoh is it, 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 stunning to her. So she lays in this glade with him, she marvels that he would look at her this way. When, when she's just one among many beautiful women. It's possible that, that she wants to again hear from his lips how, how special she, he considers her to be. And if that's the case, the, the lover certainly does not disappoint. Look at verse 2. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. He, he picks up her term for the common flower, the, the crocus of the day or one of the common flowers, and he picks that up and he says, no, you don't, you're not just one among many other flowers. You're one among the brambles. You're one among thorns. You're the only one that is delightful to my eyes. That's the message. She alone is the flower, the lily. As far as, she can, as, far as he is concerned, she is the only one worth looking at. 
That's exactly what the beloved wanted to hear. And in her heart, she, she swoons once more. And again, she addresses one more time her yearning for, for love's fulfillment. Look at verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. The woman here, the beloved, she's playing off the cue of her lover, and she expresses that, that she too finds him more beautiful than any other young man. He is the most precious to her. She likens him to the most fruitful tree under which she will gladly take her shade. Being with him is sweet. It is delightful. It's an experience that's worth craving. I know that verse 4 is familiar because we have the song, His Banner Over Me is Love. So, so the phrase is familiar, but the actually metaphor that the woman is invoking is unclear. It's hard to really understand exactly what she's saying. The, the idea of a banner flying over, that, that's really a military metaphor. But how does a military metaphor fit into the entrance to a festive banquet? The connection's unclear. From, from the rest of what she sings in this extended section here, it's clear that, that she's yearning for the consummation of her love. Most likely, verse 4 indicates that, that when her lover brings her into his festive hall, when, when they come to their wedding and they come to this period of celebration in the festive hall, it will be clear to all that she is his. It is as if his banner is the one that she rallies under. He is her captain. Her allegiance is to, to him alone, and that will be clear to all because she's standing under his banner. What we hear in this section of the song is that the beloved is yearning for the day when she will experience the, the fullness of his love. She's anticipating that time when it will be clear to all that she is his alone. She pictures herself nestled in his embrace, fully giving herself to him, stimulated by his love. Again, we may be shocked by such directness in Scripture, but we shouldn't be. God has designed human love to progress in this manner. God created us with this capacity within us. He designed it to work this way. Love finds its completeness in the giving of oneself fully to the one who is loved completely. For our singers, for the beloved and her lover, this day together under the trees is not that day. They are not man and wife at this time. Their, their festal celebration remains in the future. Thus, the, this first section of the song, it, it, this first movement in this symphony, this first verse in this magnificent choral arrangement, it ends not with fulfillment, but with a warning. The warning of love's dangers. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. It's unclear, again, who's singing this verse, this final verse. In fact, 
this phrase will mark the end of all the major sections of, of this song. What's clear is that this is a solo part. It's just not clear who sings it. It's easy to imagine the beloved, the, the, the one who has just sung of her passion and her yearning for the fulfillment of her passion. It's easy to imagine her turning to her friends, the choral, and singing this warning. It's equally easy to imagine that, that both the beloved and the lover together turn to the choral and sing in unison their shared warning. Combining their voices in unison, making this warning a personal expression from each of them to, to the, the chorus, the young ladies. Do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Now you may have noticed I, I cannot bring myself to to include the added my that the New American Standard or the King James Version throws in there. Do not arouse or awaken my love. It doesn't fit. That they, that's supplied because the translator thought the love's been consummated and now the, the lover has fallen asleep and they're saying don't wake her up until she pleases to be awake. That, that's not what's going on here. The warning is not about uh, either waking the, the beloved or the lover who's fallen asleep, the warning is about awaking love itself before the proper time. As I said, this refrain will be repeated two more times in the song, and each time it marks the major divide in the larger choral arrangement. And it's a warning to the young ladies making up the chorus group, the, the friends, the, the daughters of Jerusalem. It's a warning to avoid arousing love before its proper time. The beloved and the the lover, they're at the point where they long for one another. They, they long for the, the full physical union of love. Their, their passion is rising to the level where it's becoming all-consuming as, as they desire more and more. They desire closer and closer intimacy. They're experiencing the power of love as it grows to this point. Nothing can express the power of love's passion more fully then this warning to the female companions, avoid getting to this point before it's time. You, you may recall, I, I mentioned last week, that, that we should learn several lessons as, as we work our way through the song. The, the lesson that we learned last week, lesson number one, was that love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. God is the one who gives us human love. And when God gives it to us, it's worth pursuing because it comes from God. It's one of his good gifts. Well, this week we have a second lesson. A lesson that comes from this final warning. Lesson number two is that we must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. We must constrain it. We must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. Constrain is a word that, that means to severely restrict something, to restrict the scope or activity of something. In, in this case, what we need constrain is the scope and the activity of new love. New love, if it's left to expand, if it's not constrained, it, it will inevitably head toward intimacy. That is how God designed human love to work. It's natural to want to give ourselves to the one we love. Yet, yet what we need to realize is, is that we can only accomplish this within the context that God has designed for love to find its fulfillment. 
within the context of marriage. It's only within marriage that intimacy, and just make sure we're clear, I'm talking about sex. It's only within marriage that that sex can function as a response of giving oneself fully as an expression of love. That's because it's only within marriage that that intimacy is occurring within the context of a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship that that provides security and safety. A a commitment to one another that is binding. So that it becomes fully about giving joy to the other person. And and celebrating love's commitment to one another. Our our sin-filled culture has tried to separate sexual intimacy from marriage. From the marriage covenant. Yet whenever... Intimacy is pursued outside the the covenant commitment of marriage. It it becomes a means of taking rather than giving. Which distorts completely God's design. Men and women are taking pleasure for themselves, for their own enjoyment, when it's moved outside the covenant relationship of marriage. They are not giving of themselves as, as a final full expression of their love. In fact, they cannot fully give of themselves because they've never committed themselves to the other person in a binding covenant. Marriage alone provides that context. I I know that that many people today treat the marriage covenant more like a negotiated contract than a binding agreement. Uh, Again, that's just a a testimonial to to the level that sin has penetrated our culture. That, That says nothing about what God designed the covenant to be. God designed the covenant of marriage to be binding. That's not our lesson, though, this morning. The lesson from, our, from the song that we have this morning is a warning about the danger that comes when we dabble with the precursors to human intimacy, when, when we allow love to, to start developing, when the opportunity for intimacy within the covenant context of marriage is not present. That's the warning. We're playing with something that that is likely blow up in our face when we allow love to begin when it cannot go all the way. When romantic love has no means of finding its fulfillment. Now there are several applications that should strike us from, from this lesson. It is always inappropriate to allow any sort of of new love, any sort of romantic love to to develop when it cannot rightly grow. That means married men and women cannot casually flirt with people who are not their spouses. Married men and women cannot spend private time with people who are not their spouses. These actions risk uh, illicit development of of love beginning in places where, where it cannot rightly grow. We, we need to realize that, that there's no one standing on a platform on their wedding day saying, I do, to their, their, their spouse, establishing the marriage covenant. No one is standing there planning to have an affair. Affairs come because we fail to constrain ourselves as we ought. And we allow new love to, to sprout where nothing should grow other than the committed love to our spouse. There's an application here for married men and women. We also need to wise up in the area of dating. There's an application when it comes to dating. In our culture, casual casual sex of our culture tells us more than anything else that we need to work hard to place great safeguards around the dating relationship. 
So this lesson is particularly applicable for parents of teens. Parents, it's naive to think that, that our teenage son or daughter that will never be tempted to go too far in the area of physical intimacy. It's naive to think this is not possible in, with your child. If they are given the opportunity for romantic love to develop, God had, has designed love so that it will develop. And God has designed love so that when romantic love develops, it will lead to a yearning for more and more intimacy. We're simply ignoring God's design if we think that the love can arbitrarily be stunted because marriage is still years away. It's up to parents to constrain new love in teens. I would suggest that that group activities would be the only activities you allow your teenager to go on. Plus, I would also encourage you to have very direct conversations with your teens about the reality of how God has designed love to function. Friends, our culture resists purity. It resists purity in love. And in fact, our culture despises purity. And all of us, all week long, we are inundated with, with messages to, that says, cast off any constraints around love. As a church, we need to help one another resist the destructive messages of this world. And we need to follow the wisdom that God has given us in the song. We must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. That is our lesson this morning. Now, before I conclude this, this morning, I, I do want to think about how we can see that this progress of ideal love as we see it in our text, how, how that informs us about the love of our Savior. After all, as I said last week, our Savior is the perfect demonstration of love. So how can we look at this progress of, of ideal love here and learn something about the love of our Savior? At the human level, we, we've seen that God has designed love so that it will find its final fulfillment in, in the absolutely, absolute giving of oneself for the joy of the beloved. That is the final fulfillment of love, that, that we will humanly give ourselves for the, the joy and fulfillment of the one that we love. Well, that's what our Savior did. He gave himself completely. He gave his life. He died on the cross so that we would have true joy. The, the joy of forgiveness. Forgiveness comes in believing in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And forgiveness brings reconciliation with God. We were separated from God by the, the infinite gulf of our sin until Christ gave himself for us. Human love can only reach its final fulfillment within a covenant relationship. Christ established the new covenant through his blood so that we can experience his perfect love. There is something for us to learn from this progression of ideal love to recognize our Savior has shown his perfect love. For now, until we experience the, the final fulfillment of Christ's love, we need to live wisely in our use and pursuit of human love. We must constrain new love until it can rightly grow. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in the song again this morning. As we continue to look through the song, I pray that you would help us to learn to live our lives more fully and more properly. May we pursue purity as we ought. May we live wisely. And may we rejoice over all that we receive from our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.